Hello, and welcome to Quinn Cummings Gives Bad Advice. You pretty much know what the podcast is about. My name is Quinn Cummings, and I give bad advice to people. Why am I doing this? Because it entertains me to do so. It's like having coffee with me without having to get into pants. But here's the thing. I'm not actually qualified to discuss anything. I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a lawyer. I've never worked on a car. I think cars are run by steroid-powered guinea pigs. And I haven't been on a first date since the turn of the last millennium. But if you want my opinion, I'm your gal. Will it be good advice? I think I just told you in the title. You can't say you weren't warned. Now, let's get started. My first question is from somebody somewhere on the internet. Dear Quinn, what's the best way to make a birthday cake for someone you hate? Uh, I would say badly, or use X-Lax in the chocolate frosting. But that's illegal, and the title of this podcast is not Quinn Cummings Gives Illegal Advice. You are clearly the baker of this particular group, because you already know you can't get out of it. And while I don't really care about food or cooking, I like baking. I like how it's optional. You have to cook in order to live, or you have to get a lot of takeout in order to live. No one has to bake. You want to bake. Baking is love. And here you are being forced to sext someone you hate. I feel as if the person you hate is an in-law. If I'm right, don't say anything. I knew it. Anyway, you take care with this cake. You do all the usual bits because you take pride in your work, and then you seethe because someone completely unworthy is eating it. Which is where my suggestion is going to come in. For their cakes, don't think about the outcome. Think about the process. You never made fondant? Great! Try working with fondant. There's a German chocolate cake recipe which is Stupid fussy, but also might be 7% better than a regular German chocolate cake? Go to town. This cake may appear to be your usual Stella work, but only you know the secret. It's just a dress rehearsal for when you make it for someone you care about. If the Italian icing turns out a little gummy, or you realize fondant is just the baking god's way of annoying her most devoted acolytes, you do not care. Because the only reason you made this cake was information. You now have more information. If someone wishes to eat your trash, well, what do you care? But the cake may not be as good as it usually is, you might reasonably protest. Unless everyone tasting this cake is fresh out of baking school, they will not notice. Sugar is a drug. You are a supplier. Anything else is commentary. Oh, And if you practice frosting roses, I get dibs on one. And now, our second question. This comes from Nameless Person on the Internet. Dear Quinn, my mother-in-law died five years ago after a very lengthy illness. She moved in with us for the last few years of her life. She was a hoarder, and my wife cannot bring herself to get rid of the things she collected. Nothing is valuable, but her clothes are in the closet, Her knickknacks line the shelves. Her kitchen cleaning supplies from a house she moved out of nine years ago are in the garage. 
Her household furniture is in storage, and on and on. I want my house back. The clutter keeps us from doing things we used to enjoy, like entertaining, but my wife is resistant. She knows the stuff only makes her sad, but she can't part with it. Any advice? When my mother died, I inherited a bunch of stuff from her house, mostly of little value and reeking of cat pee, but some things were decent. There were corners of my life that her objects would have improved. My mother left such a wake of cruelty behind her that I couldn't get rid of her things fast enough. I wouldn't keep anything that had been hers up to and including cleaning products that were identical to what I had under my kitchen sink. All this to say, stuff is never stuff. There's not a person hearing this who hasn't felt guilty about throwing some object away, hasn't whispered sorry to the car they were about to trade in. On some level, we're all animists. We think objects have spirits. If it helps, think of your problem like a myth. Five years after your mother's death, your wife is trapped in a maze or, or a castle or, or like an endless cave. You talk to her, but all she hears is the echo of your words, her mother's words, her own grief, her own anxiety, all telling her different things. She freezes, not because she likes where she is, but because moving ahead seems worse. She is stuck, and any time you try to pull or push her, she gets more stuck. I honestly feel terrible for you and for her. I can't imagine anyone in your house is really happy. A fair amount of hoarding, the impulse to hoard, is genetic, often brought on by a trauma. It's possible your wife is fighting that. People don't necessarily hoard because they love this crap. They hoard because their brain insists they do so. She might still be grieving because she loved her mother so much, or maybe she's grieving because it wasn't the mothering she'd wish she had gotten, and she isn't ready to let go yet of the hope that it's going to change. All of these feelings deserve their time and attention with a therapist or a member of your clergy. If she fights you, go on your own and get some tips for how to live with this. As a matter of fact, there are meetings for the loved ones of addicts, alcoholics, drug addicts. I assume there's something in the 12-step program for hoarders. I don't know off the top of my head. I would go if I were you. First of all, it's free. What could it hurt? Second of all, those are other people who are also trapped with people who are trapped. And at the very least, they're going to empathize. I have a friend whose wife became a hoarder in the last two decades of their marriage. And the thing he's talked about afterwards is the loneliness. No one knew how bad it was there. They didn't have friends over. He just suffered along with her. The woman you love is trapped right now, but you don't have to be. Here's another question. Quinn, what is your favorite color of soup? I have no favorite color soup because soup is disgusting. And if you just said to me, no, Quinn, soup is wonderful. You are in the pocket of big soup and I have no advice for you. Here's one from somewhere on the internet. Quinn, 
What is your most joy-filled period of the day? It depends on how you define joy. I think for sparking lively, I am so grateful to be alive feeling. Nothing is finer than the last two minutes of Pilates when I realize the pain is almost done and other people are walking in for the next class, so I realize she can't hurt us that much longer. Uh, For like a longer, wow, I'm doing something that matters kind of feeling, Uh, probably feeding the kittens right now. One of the two foster kittens we have has decided that she doesn't need to eat in any regular way and that she's just going to quietly fade away into nothingness, and I am stopping her from that. And she will grow out of it, but in the meanwhile, we kind of force her to eat every day. And then she eats a little bit on her own, and I look at her and I think, look at you, you're not dying today, good for you. I would like, however, to note that the two things that give me joy are Pilates and cats. Apparently, I am the white lady in a Tyler Perry movie. I am that much of a cliche. Dear Quinn, what do I do when I can't fall asleep? I had insomnia for 20 years, so I think I could write a book on this, but I will give you one tip. I found that there were certain sitcoms that were so wonderfully boring that my brain would just finally relax. One of them being a Canadian sitcom called Little Mosque on the Prairie. It wasn't actually funny, and it wasn't actually that good. I mean, Canadians are usually funnier than we are. I don't know where this show came from. And if you created that show, I'm sorry. I'm sure it's wonderful. Maybe it's just the insomnia talking. But there was something about that show where my brain would finally go, ah, I will let you sleep because sleeping is better than watching this show. Find your own little mosque on the prairie. Ooh, I like this question. Dear Quinn, How do I get my two cats to accept the new rescued seven-year-old Spaniel? Um, Spaniels tend to be mild. Seven-year-old dogs, really, they're just happy to be home. The cats are, they may never be excited about the dog, but as long as you give them an exit, their attitude should just go to low-key scorn. So my suggestion to you is verticality. Cats can go upwards, dogs can't. As long as the cats look in the room and realize they can get above the dog, they're not going to get freaked because their attitude is, sucks to be you, ground mammal. I am sitting up here looking down at you. And, you know, indifference may be the highest you can hope for. This comes from Nameless Person on the Internet. Dear Quinn, why can't I kick this cold? because it's a sinus infection. Dear Quinn, my husband is on the edges of the industry, perhaps about to break in. To that end, he has competed in a film festival writer's conference for the past two years. This year, I will be joining him to make it a bit of a vacation for the two of us. He's super introverted, and I am not, so he's hoping that having me with him at the networking events will help him mingle better. And if I'm there to facilitate the mingling, he can join in once I break the ice. And he's smart and low-key and can talk movies all day. But I'm worried about seeing as just the wife. 
and doing him a disservice by seeming like a hanger-on. If I'm introduced to a working writer, producer, director who isn't a big household name, it's likely I'll have no idea that they are someone. I'm worried I'll inadvertently offend or make a bad impression. So my question is, how can I manage my feelings of insecurity while also being the bubbly half of our couple? What's a good way to break the ice when I'm not the person who is industry? Before famous people were famous, they were people. They became famous because they have a peculiar blend of talent, nerve, and dumb luck. On some level, they know how much of their current lives were a flip of the coin, that the fate smiled upon them and could stop at any second. The ones who work very hard to forget that fact, to pretend that they were anointed from birth, are jackasses. The ones who remember this fact are not. Your job is not to talk to famous people. It is to lubricate the first few inches of this conversation so your husband can easily slide in. What a terrible image that was. You are born for this job. Do it the same way you have always done it. If someone is a jackass, it's not because you didn't handle the conversation correctly. It's because you're talking to a jackass. Move on to the next person. As to the, what if I don't recognize a person? It's a conference. There will be handouts telling you who is there. I've been told introverts are better at research than extroverts, and your husband adores movies. Great. Tell him before you leave, you need to know what the people he wants to meet look like and what they did that you can use in a conversation. And if someone asks what you do, I vote for, this weekend, I start conversations with people I think are worthy of meeting my husband. And now, our next question. Dear Quinn, How do I keep squirrels out of my bird feeder? Red pepper flakes. Birds cannot taste them. Squirrels do not like them. You're welcome. And the final question for today. Dear Quinn, how do I convince my wife to let me get a puppy? Oh, you don't. People either want a dog or they don't. And I'm pretty sure that if she is looking at you as you're all, I want a puppy, she is seeing an eight-year-old saying, I want a puppy. And she's thinking, I'm going to be walking and feeding this puppy for the next 17 years. So you are not going to convince her to get a puppy. You are going to show her what an amazing puppy parent you would be. Here is how you do it. You figure out what breed she kind of likes the most. You then Google, whatever that breed is, rescue, and your zip code. You find out who rescues that breed near to you. You then go with your wife and you say to them, we are available to foster. And before you have finished that sentence, you will have a dog in your arms because there are a lot more dogs than there are people who want dogs. Small public service announcement here. Anytime you can foster animals is a great thing. It helps the animals. It helps get them out of these shelters, saves lives. It is nothing but net positive. The fabulous thing about fostering is, well, it's dating. In fact, you can be kind of a hoe. You can just like go through a bunch of puppies if you want. Nobody's going to judge you. You say to your wife, this isn't a forever puppy. We're keeping it for a week. You can even say we're keeping it for a weekend. Rescue groups will take whatever you can give them. And now you have a puppy in the house. 
So then you do a little fostering and you prove to her you're not going to be the one who just lets the dog pee on the couch. You're going to be like, hey, I'll see you in a few minutes after I get back from walking the dog. Because right now, she has no evidence to say that you're going to be totally on top of it. If you are totally on top of it, then you've made your argument. Prove her wrong. Be an excellent foster parent. Who knows? You might end up with a dog. Well, I think that's enough bad advice for right now. Keep your questions coming, and I promise to keep giving the same bad advice. Thank you so much for supporting me. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for the questions. I can always use more. You can send them to me on Twitter at Quincy, Q-U-I-N-N-C-Y. See you soon.